We've seen in Job chapter 3 that Job has expressed his grief and his loss uh, because of the immense suffering that has come upon him. He says that the day of his birth is a cursed day. It should be removed from the calendar altogether. His three friends, who are pictured as possessors of wisdom, have come, and their purpose, according to chapter 2 and verse 11, is to bring Job comfort and sympathy. And now we're going to look at some of the things these friends begin to say. And tonight we're going to look at the words of Eliphaz, and then we're going to look at the response to Eliphaz that Job gives. This is one of the most lengthy uh, discourses between the two that we have in the book, uh, four chapters, and they're not short chapters, and so that means it's not going to be possible for us to read all four chapters and still be able to match and deal with the time constraints of of the evening. So uh, what we will do is we'll highlight some of the important statements that are made uh, by Eliphaz and by Job, and consider then the help that the friends give. We'll consider the response that Job gives to the friends, and then ultimately consider what we learn about God from the discourse. And we'll follow that pattern really throughout uh, these discourses that we see these three friends and Job go back and forth and back and forth as they try to understand the suffering that Job is dealing with and how God runs the world. So we're going to be in Job chapters 4 through 7 tonight and it is chapters 4 and 5 that initiate then with Eliphaz discussion with Job. The first six verses are, are probably some of the kindest things that Eliphaz will say the whole time. Uh, it's probably the kindest things any of the three friends will say in the whole uh, sum of discourses that are about to happen. You'll notice in verse 2 that uh, Eliphaz begins really with a gentle word. Might, uh, if someone were to venture a word with you, would you be impatient yet? Who can keep from speaking? I, I feel that I need to say something to you, Job, about these things, and, and I hope that you will listen to the things that I have to say. And he points out in verses 3 and 4 that, that Job is righteous. And he, he says, you know, you have helped people. You have instructed many. You have strengthened weak hands, upheld those who are stumbling. You have, have uh, made uh, the firm the, the weak knees. Job, I, I, I know that you are a, a good person. I understand that you are a righteous person. You have done good things. And essentially then, He criticizes in verse 5 and says, But now that it has come upon you, in reference to this suffering, uh, you are impatient, it touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Probably really the best thing that Eliphaz will ever say. Is that he will just basically tell him, You are righteous, I have seen your righteousness, you have strengthened the weak knees and held up those hands, and... Now that it comes upon you that you are suffering, you had advised other people and their suffering what to do, and you should basically take your own medicine and listen to your own counsel and understand that your righteousness should be your confidence. If you are as right before God as you think, then you should understand then that that is going to vindicate you in the end. Your your blameless conduct is going to save you. This is just a temporary setback and things then are going to be okay. 
Now what's interesting is Eliphaz doesn't really keep to that. He pretty quickly shifts off of that. But it's interesting how he begins very softly. If I just want to venture a word with you, and yes, you are righteous, and your righteousness will be your vindication. It's going to be okay. And so don't be impatient. Don't be dismayed. It's going to be fine. But then listen now what he points out in verse 7. Remember who was who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of His anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. And so he basically says the wicked always reap what they sow. I think quite an interesting declaration is made there in verse 7 when he says, Who that was righteous ever perished, or where were the upright ever cut off? (laughs) Okay. Um, Interesting vantage point that Eliphaz come from to to say, well, the innocent never suffer. The innocent are never cut off. The upright never have anything go wrong with them. And notice he doesn't directly hit Job. He just kind of speaks in these generalities. You know, the innocent don't perish, Job. And then you notice he pushes that a little bit further when he says in verse 8, well, you know, I have seen that those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And I want us to recognize that what he says right there is a biblical principle. You can find that in the Old Testament, the Proverbs. You can find that in the New Testament. What a man sows, he will reap. And the New Testament's filled with taking that quote. And that's what Eliphaz says to Job. You know, a person reaps what you sow. And so you should consider that the innocent have never perished. And you reap what you sow. So isn't that interesting, Job? <laughs> Very generic saying these things to begin to cause Job to think about, well, maybe you should be considering your situation. Maybe your position about your righteousness is not as accurate as you think. And I don't want to say too much here, Job, but Elphaz is basically saying, I understand your righteousness and the good that you've done, but please consider it. It's not the innocent who've ever perished. They're not the ones who are cut off and that you do Reap what you sow. And now he goes a little bit further in verses 12 to 21. A really interesting part of the discourse because what Eliphaz now goes about doing is simply saying, God has given me a message to tell you. I received this in a dream and in a vision. I have received this message from God. And so my words that I am giving to you are really the very advice of God. And so what I'm about to impart to you is wisdom. It is God's wisdom. It is God's word to you as God gave it to me. So I will also give it to you. And the message that he received from God that he now tells Job is found in verse 17. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And so again, Eliphaz makes an implication. You should reconsider your position about your righteousness because God gave me a message and his message to tell you is who can be right before God? Can anyone be pure before God? And so Job 
It may not be that you are as right as you think you are. In fact, in verses 18 and 19, he will go on to say, consider that if God judges the angels and considers them faulty, then what do you think about humans? Humans must certainly be faulty. Humans must certainly be in error. If God judges his own spiritual beings and finds fault with them, how much more than is he going to find fault with humans, Job? He's certainly going to find it before you. And then verses 20 and 21, if one stumbles, if you make one mistake, if there's one slip up, life then completely falls apart. He likes and likens it to a tent and a cord and one stumbles over the cord and the whole tent falls down. And he says, Job, you need to Consider that basically everybody at some point deserves some sort of punishment for sin. And you do reap what you sow. And I haven't seen that the innocent ever perish. And so you should reconsider your position about what you think you are in terms of your righteousness before God. Quite an opening beginning there. And if you haven't studied the book over and over, this is the softest tone that you will get out of these guys. Right here, nicest things they could possibly say. And you reason God's not very nice, but this is the best that they can do. Because now chapter 5, he moves forward, and what he does in this shifting of the advice is he starts giving descriptions about who the fool is. Listen to some of the descriptions. Chapter 5, verse 1. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest and he takes it even out of thorns and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. That's a great line. I like that picture. (laughs) Did you catch what Eliphaz just did right there? He says, now, Joe, I've seen the fool and I've seen, let me describe to you the life of the fool. And I don't want you to be a fool, Joe, because... If you're a fool, then the result is going to be devastation. But did you notice that some of the descriptions that he gives, like the children being cut down at the gate and your wealth and your food being carried away, he seems to be borrowing a little bit of what has happened to Job and saying kind of indirectly, now I've seen that what happens to a fool is that their children are killed and their wealth is lost. Now I don't want to say anything about you, Job, but just consider that. But that happens to fool, and I don't think you should be a fool, Job. (laughs) So very interesting how he just kind of is working around that. And then to drive that nail home, you'll notice in verses 6 and 7, what he says is, trouble doesn't come from nowhere. Your trouble came from somewhere. And that your evil is the root of trouble. And your suffering distance suddenly appear on the scene. And the reason, there's a reason behind all the trouble you have. That's what verse 6, affliction doesn't come from the dust. It is a, you know, trouble just doesn't happen upon you. There's a reason behind it. Something happened to you. And, and there's a purpose behind that in that you must have done something wrong. Because that's what I've always seen. Because the innocent never suffer. The innocent are never cut off. And thus he uses the picture of basically man is born for trouble. 
You're going to make mistakes. You're going to sin. And thus you are going to suffer. And it's just as obvious as sparks flying upward is that you as a human are going to have trouble in this life. And so, Job, your stance of righteousness is not going to work because trouble doesn't come from nowhere. You must have done something and we are born for trouble. And so you notice the, the, the soft way he's coming around to try to get Job to back off of this righteous position in which Job is standing. And to go a little bit further then, what he then presses in verses 8 to 16 is he says now, verse 8, As for me, I would seek the Lord, and to God I would commit my cause. Now, we need to kind of understand what Eliphaz is saying right here, because it sounds kind of positive. He's saying, basically, I would make my appeal to God. But the appeal that Eliphaz is telling Job to make is not one of righteousness or innocence. He's not saying, now, if I were being unjustly uh, experiencing the suffering and trouble, I would make my appeal to God and say, God, I don't understand what's happening. Appeal for, for him to change that. That's not the idea. The word that is given here in the Hebrew for appeal is not a word that we would use like that, but it is a word that means to seek an oracle to find out your offense or to discover the pathway of appeasement. And so the idea of here's what I would do with I were you and make this appeal to God is not some kind of vindication before God, but you need to appeal to God to find out what you did wrong And thus, once it's revealed to you what you did wrong, then you can admit your sin and it's all going to be better. So you need to appeal to God and figure, I know you think you're righteous and I have seen your righteousness, but trouble doesn't come from anywhere. So you must have done something wrong. And so since you don't know what you did, you should make your appeal to God and let God reveal to you what you did wrong. And thus, when he does that, then you can commit your case to God and apologize and repent of your sin. And then it's going to be all better. So in essence, he says, that's why you need to be humble. You need to humble yourself, Job. Because you're not righteous. Who can be righteous before God? That's the message God told me to dream. And he told me to dream to tell you who can be pure before God. And so you need to humble yourself. And when you humble yourself, the rest of chapter 5 is this wonderful description given by Eliphaz of just think of all the blessings that God will give you when you just repent. If you would just repent to God, you would not believe all the good that God is going to do. And he is going to restore all your blessings. He's going to restore your wealth. And and that God will keep you from danger in the future. Amazing words that Eliphaz says. In the future, danger will not even touch your life if you would just repent and seek that restoration of God. Now, I want us to consider just for a moment before we look at... what things Job is going to say in regards to this. I think one of the things that's interesting about what Eliphaz says is that if Job does what Eliphaz says, then Job actually proves the case for Satan. Because Satan has said, people are only on board for the blessings. People are only on board for the good that you do, and they will do anything to receive it. And if Job basically says, okay, I will ignore my righteousness and I will do anything to get my wealth back and get my health back, then you're proving the very thing that Satan has laid out. They're only in it for what they get out of it. 
And I want us to observe that because it is important to sustain what Job is going to do. It is critical that Job continue to contend for his own righteousness. Because by doing so, he is saying, I don't care about restoring the blessings. That's not the issue. The issue is I am right and my relationship before God is what matters and I am in the right and I don't understand what this was going on here. He could just capitulate and go, okay, I'll just kind of throw up a repentance and let's see if God restores because that's all I'm caring about. But Job won't do that. Yeah, probably a parallel would be like the person who says, uh, I, I refuse to admit a crime that I didn't commit, and therefore I will stay in prison my whole jail sentence on the sake of righteousness. That's what Job is doing, is saying, I'm not going to do what you say, Eliphaz, because I've not done anything wrong. I'm, I'm right before God, and I'm more concerned about my relationship with God and maintaining that integrity than somehow trying to barter with God to bring all the blessings back. Because that's what Eliphaz does. If you would just repent, we'll fix it all. God will just restore you like you've never seen before. And it'll be amazing if you just do that. And so Job's stance of standing on righteousness is a very important piece of the story of Job in his life because it is not succumbing to the temptation of Satan that says people only serve for what they get out of God. And he refuses to go down that road and is more concerned about, this is what truth and righteousness and integrity and blamelessness are all about. Now, when Eliphaz does speak, I think it is interesting to observe. You will notice, as we observed a little bit already, Eliphaz does not just speak sin. You're not reading two chapters where you read that and go, well, those are the words of Satan and they are absolutely all false, all sinful and all wrong. They're not. In fact, they're quoted in the New Testament. One of them, like in in Job chapter 5, verse 13, about he catches the wise in their craftiness. The Apostle Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians and uses the very words of Eliphaz. That's not an incorrect statement at all. When he speaks about uh, the Lord uh, blesses the one whom the Lord reproves. Therefore, do not despise the discipline of the Almighty for he, he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. We read that in the Proverbs. We read that in Hebrews chapter 12. So if Eliphaz is saying these things where he says, hey, suffering is disciplinary and the scriptures bear that out, certainly Hebrews 12 says it, Proverbs 3 says it, what's the problem? Why don't we have God coming in with Eliphaz and saying, yep, that's right. That's exactly what the scriptures say. The scriptures do say that God can use suffering for disciplinary reasons, that he is trying to correct his people. And so Eliphaz is exactly right. There's two problems with what Eliphaz has done. And that's what sets the tone of where Job is going to come from. Number one, not all suffering is intended to bring sinners back. I think that's a very important aspect is that we can't just say, well, that means every piece of suffering that ever comes along was God's intention to bring you back from your sin. You can't make that argument. Does God use suffering to bring people back? Yes. 
So that means all suffering means that. No. <laughs> this is a general principle that we see in the Proverbs that, that the writer of Hebrews is expressing. That yes, these things can be used by God, but you cannot then look at suffering and say, that must be what it is. Because that's what Eliphaz does. Eliphaz says, who of the innocent has ever perished? Therefore, you must be doing something wrong. God's trying to bring you back. Which leads to that second part. You cannot look at the outcome and determine the cause of suffering. This is something I'm going to drum into us for a long time in this series. Because we like to try to do this. And this is what the friends will try to do. Is what they want to do is they want to look at the outcome and say, Well, because you're suffering, that must mean you've sinned. And you cannot take the outcome and know here's the reason why. That is what makes the wisdom book so interesting. It's because the wisdom books are always talking about the difficulties and collisions of trying to understand that. Because the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about why is it that the righteous perish and the, the wicked prosper? Well, that seems to be in direct contradiction of what Job is talking about right here. You can't look at the result and say, well, I know here's the problem. And we especially know that in the book of Job. That's why those first two chapters were so important. The first two chapters emphasized, highlighted, underlined, and emblazoned into our mind. Job is blameless. He's upright. He fears God and he turns from evil. Over and over and over again, we're told that. He fears God. He turns away from evil. He is blameless. He is upright. And so you cannot draw the conclusion like Eliphaz is doing and say, well, that must mean you're being disciplined by God. So this becomes a part of what we've been studying, what we continue to look at is, does God try to bring back sinners? Absolutely. Does that mean I can look at all suffering and decide if I'm a sinner or not? No, you cannot. And that's the mistake that Eliphaz is making. And this then is the essence of what Job then does in his response. His response fills from chapter 6 to chapter 7. And as he opens then in chapter 6 with his response, he, he really just describes the intensity of his suffering, just the misery that he continues to be and how awful it is and the weight of what he feels perhaps might be best described in verse 4 when he describes there that the arrows of the Almighty are in me. He feels that he has been shot through by God. Uh, I have been righteous and all that has happened to me is as if God's weight is upon me and He has shot me through. And then he goes on in verses 6 and 7 and says, And your words, Eliphaz, your wisdom that you have brought to me, they have been no help at all. I am starving for this food that you would come and encourage me and help me. And he says, it was tasteless. It didn't help me. It had no value to me. It didn't give me what I was looking for. Verses 8-13. through 13, Listen to what he now describes that he wishes God to do for him. Verse 8 of chapter 6. Oh, that I might have my request... And that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that He would let loose His hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. 
What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Lord, He just says, finish me off just so that I can be at rest. We saw that in chapter 3, there is no peace. There is no rest. There is no hope. And He wishes that God would just end this for Him. But notice what He says His hope is in this. Here is Eliphaz saying, I have never seen the innocent cut off. I have never seen the righteous suffer. And so trouble doesn't come from nowhere. You must have done something wrong. And here in verse 10, notice what he says, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Eliphaz, you can say all you want that I must have done something wrong. But I have not denied the words of the Holy One. And his whole argument is repentance isn't going to bring relief because there's nothing for me to repent of. This is only going to infuriate the friends by him saying this. But this is his stance. I haven't done anything wrong. There is not going to be restoration through repentance because I haven't sinned. And you may go on and on and on about, hey, the innocent never suffer, but I'm going to tell you something right now. The innocent are suffering. I'm blameless. I'm upright. And so he draws that conclusion to them. And I hope you heard in verses 11 through 13 there, he doesn't think he's going to last much longer. And I hope you get a sense of that almost every time Job talks, you're going to hear how crushed Job is. Verse 12, is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? No. I'm not going to be able to handle a whole lot more of this, guys. So he's expressing his pain, expressing his grief, but at the same time he says, I haven't done anything. I haven't denied the Holy Ones of God. And then he turns around in verses 14 to 30, and he just basically says, and you guys didn't bring me any help at all. (laughs) I was looking forward to you coming But listen to verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You know, I was looking for help. I love the imagery in in, in verses 15 to 21. He says, it's like a bunch of nomads who are walking through the desert and they know where a riverbed is and they veer out of the way for miles to go to that riverbed so they can finally get some cool water only to find that it's a wadi that is dried up in the desert. He says, that's what you guys are. I was so looking forward to you coming to me and giving me your words of encouragement and comfort. And here you are and I'm ready to drink from it. And it's like drinking sand. Give me nothing. You are no relief to me at all. You are no help for me. Verses 22 to 30, he just goes on and says, I didn't even ask anything from you. There's only one thing I was hoping for, words of help, and you didn't even bring me that. You know, what did I ask of you to do? Have I really asked so much of you? Have I really put some great demands on your life? I just wanted some encouragement. Verse 26, but what you do is you treat my words like the wind. You won't believe how many times these friends call Job a windbag. Over and over again, they say, you're full of hot air. You're an airhead. You have, you're just, they just go on and on and on. And he just go and he said he's already saying it here. You treat my words like the wind. You don't even listen to what I'm saying. You're not hearing what I'm telling you, Eliphaz. I didn't do anything wrong, and so therefore your words are no help. I love verse twenty four. Look at it there. 
Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. You think I've sinned? Please point it out to me. Teach, show me. You think that, you know, the innocent never suffer? Then show me what I've done wrong. Show me what I've done and I'll do something about it. But the point that he makes is that I don't deserve what is happening happening to me at all. Verse 29, please turn, let no injustice be done. Turn now, my vindication is at stake. You guys are solely my character and saying that I've done wrong. My character and my vindication here is at stake, and I have not done anything wrong. And if you think I've done something wrong, why don't you show me what I've done? But I haven't denied the words of the Holy One. And your words have been no help, and you're not listening to what I have to say. And that brings him into chapter 7. In chapter 7, he just continues to lament. It's very similar to the things that we saw in chapter 3. Job returns to the lament where he says that life is hard, it is miserable. He experiences sleepless nights, verse 3. He is in complete pain, verse 6. Total misery and living in hopelessness. It is... I think probably impossible for us to identify with the extraordinary pain that Job is in. And from time to time, he will speak what he is feeling and experiencing. And we have to grab onto those to appreciate what is happening to him. And and here he does a little bit of it where he says, you have no idea how miserable I am. I don't even sleep at night. I have no help. I have no hope. I have absolutely nothing to put my hands around. Things are just painful and miserable. And yet in verse 7 he says, I'm still praying even though I'm devastated and even though I lack joy. Here he is talking to God. Remember that my life is a breath and my eye will never see good again. What we're going to see in Job is he will continue to make his cry out to God. Even though he is just devastated inside and says of his flesh, I'm not going to make it much longer. My body is not made of stone and bronze and then while the friends are hurling their attacks Job continues to speak to God and in this final section his words to God are this God pays too much attention to humans this is his first conclusion that God pays far too much attention to humans you'll notice that there in verse 17 of chapter 7. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone until I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, a watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. An amazing ending. Verse 17 is particularly interesting because what he's doing is saying, I feel the weight of God against me. He has consigned me to this condition. And what is man that you are mindful of him? Now, the reason that is particularly interesting is because that might sound familiar to you. And the psalmist says that. In Psalm 8, it is very powerfully saying, wow, isn't it amazing, the awesomeness of God, that He would pay attention to us. How great is that? 
Job turns around and goes, why are you looking at me with such scrutiny and intensity? What is man that you keep looking at me and keep looking at my life and scrutinizing and scrutinizing and scrutinizing? Verses 18 and 19, he basically says, God must have too much time on his hands. He's just, he's just constantly looking, look somewhere else, God, but every moment you're looking at me. And concludes it not, and don't, please don't read verses 20 to 21 suggesting that Job is saying that he's sinning. But what he's saying is, if God thinks I've done something wrong, he doesn't want to forgive, he just prefers to punish. I think the best analogy of that would be, if you were driving 56 miles an hour in a 55 zone, and a cop pulled you over, you'd be like, are you kidding me? And that's what Job is doing. He's saying, I haven't done anything wrong. You are just nitpicking down to the very little thing. If you think that I've done something wrong, you must be digging so deep to be able to scrutinize like that. Why are you doing that to me? You must be because he has too much time on his hands. That's his stance. Because he recognizes that he's blameless, so this isn't deserved. So God must be peering way beyond what Job would even recognize in terms of his sin. And thus he ends his words. Let's talk about some of the things that we can gain from Eliphaz and Job and their discussion, what that teaches us about God. An amazing back and forth that, that happens right there. One of the things that I think bursts off the page of what Job Describes that I think is so important for us to consider is that we need help in trials. This seems to be the biggest blow that Job has. He's going to talk about this again and again. I love later on, miserable comforters are you all. You know? Because what Job had hoped was that these three wise friends would do what they intended to do and bring comfort and sympathy. That's what he desired. And his first response is, I I thought you would be the refreshing water in the desert and you're nothing. You haven't brought me any help. You haven't brought me any hope. You haven't brought me any comfort. And he says, "Uh, you're uh, someone who uh, harms a friend, forsakes the Almighty. How could you do that? And it's interesting how often the scriptures drive home that idea of a friend loves at all times and a brother's born for adversity. The need for us to be there for one another in trial and suffering. Proverbs 27, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Do not forsake your friend or your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who's far away. There's supposed to be this relationship of us to be able to be there for one another in difficulty, in trial, and in suffering. The writer of Ecclesiastes, very memorable line, two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. And if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Threefold cold is not, the cord is not quickly broken. Constantly the scriptures are saying, we're intended to be together to help one another. 
I believe this is one of the important purposes of why God gave us local gatherings of Christians. God could have just said, let's all be individual Christians. Let's all just do our best, be moral, be good, you know, make sure you have some bread and grape juice at home and pray and just, you can just do it all at home. Why does he intend for us to come together like we do, except that we would certainly be these kinds of dependable friends to one another? And this is what Job is expressing. I needed you in my darkest hour and you forsook me. You left me when I needed help. And that's what we are supposed to be for one another, to be dependable, godly friends in adversity, to be an encourager. I love the picture of Barnabas. You know, Barnabas, that wasn't even his name. That's not even his parental name. And yet everybody called him son of encouragement. That's a beautiful picture of what it's supposed to look like with us toward one another. Encouraging, helping, dependable. We're there for one another. And we have to spend time together to do that. It's one of the things that's going to be our theme this year for 2017. We're going to be spending a theme on one another. I'll talk about that next week. We'll set the theme for the year. And here you see a picture of why that's so important. We need each other because there are days that strike us down and there are trials that hit us hard and we need each other to carry on and encourage and push forward. Number two, let's consider what Job says about God and then we'll end the lesson. I think it's interesting that Job says God must just be a fault finder. He's just got too much time on his hands. He's got the microscope out and he is analyzing every little detail. And one of the things I think is fascinating about that is the more you're able to study, particularly the Old Testament, the history of Israel, you know that's just not the way God is. It's just know that that's not the case. I love when when God wants to express himself to Moses and to Israel and says, let me tell you who I am. This is what he says. The Lord passed before him. That's Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I love that picture. Here's a picture of if I'm going to describe myself, he doesn't say I am the wrathful nitpicking God that you need to be really afraid of. Because if you take one false step or cross your eyes at me, I will barbecue you on the spot. That's not what he says. I'm a God of love. I'm merciful. I'm gracious, I'm forgiving, I'm patient, long-suffering, steadfast love to generation after generation after generation. But don't take my mercy and graciousness and long-suffering to mean that the guilty are getting away with what they're doing. That's why he ends like that. Don't, don't run with that and go, okay, well, that means I'm, I'm good. Well, no. 
I will by no means clear the guilty. But understand, I am a merciful God. I am a gracious God. And it is important for us to keep that in mind because the mercy of God and the graciousness of God and his abounding faithfulness and steadfast love, it reminds us of the promises of God. It reminds us of some of the things that we have considered that God has told to us that we will not be pushed beyond our strength, that God will supply us the strength that we need. And to ultimately always remember in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of despair and dismay and distress, that God's intention is never for our destruction, but for our salvation. That what is being allowed in our life and the extent of the trial and the degree of the difficulty is not intended for your ruin. It is intended to bring you home. And that's why God moves as he moves. And we must always keep that in mind. As hard as that can be. As painful as it can be. God loves us and is not intent on our destruction, but intends to save and is doing everything to move us to that reality. May we keep that in mind for the difficulties we face this week. We're going to sing a song. We invite you to come to Jesus and to come to a loving, forgiving, gracious, steadfastly loving and faithful God abounding in love and that we would give our lives to him, that we would see his love and that would change how we live our lives, that would change our response to not live for self, but to give our lives to Jesus completely. We encourage you to do that tonight. Turn away from your sins, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come and